Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we uh, commence reading from the third verse. We'll make our way all the way to verse 8. From the third verse, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. By the way, we'll begin from according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Oh, brethren, we are rejoicing in basically celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ. I have said a number of times already to you here that really the word unsearchable is not talking about not being able to find out. It is not being able to find incomplete exhaustion. It's, it's impossible. The, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God in this great salvation is something that just blows your mind. It is, and it is worth thinking about, meditating on, and really seeking to uh, benefit from within the context of our own souls. We have seen what the Father has done in choosing us, in predestining us, in um, adopting us, and indeed predetermining the fullness of uh, that adoption into his family as sons. We've also seen the son's work, and it is something that the father bestowed on him in the covenant of redemption. And it is the redemption that we have in him. And then from there, we have seen the primary fruit of that redemption is our forgiveness, the way in which God freely and fully forgives us. Well, today, we are back to the subject of grace. Remember, it is something we saw just a few sermons ago when we heard the words, to the praise of his glorious grace in verse 6, that the, what the Father has done for us is something that results in him being praised for the grace that he has bestowed on us, the glorious grace. But we are back to it when the Apostle Paul now says that it is the redemption, forgiveness of sins is in accordance 
to the riches of his grace. And hence, my sermon title, Riches of Grace Lavished Upon Us. It's obvious that because it was there just some two to three weeks ago, the temptation as I was preparing was to say, well, look, they had it. Let's move on. Then I thought, hang on. Paul did not think like that. And for him, it was not two to three weeks ago. It was in the same sentence. It's not even two to three sentences before. It's in the same sentence. Surely, if the Apostle Paul cannot keep away from this theme, then let's get back into it. Let's dive right back into it and try and process something of the, the holy emotions that were within his own soul as he wrote these words. And in doing so, I'm also hoping that we today and in many years to come will never get over the wonder of the love and mercy and grace of God towards us. That we may always be overwhelmed by it. And that from time to time, when we are in our own closets praying, that we might be overwhelmed to the point of tears. That so many years in our Christian lives, we still shed tears at the fact that God has had mercy on us, has, has loved us, has, has been gracious to us, hell-deserving sinners in this way. I want to begin with a question. And the question is, um, what is it that God has given us which is in accordance to he, the riches of his grace. And it seems to me that it is both the two things that have just been referred to by the Apostle Paul in verse 7 when he said, I'll begin from verse 6, the last part, in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It is those two things, both the redeeming work of the Son and then also the pardoning work of the Father. Both of those are according to the riches of his grace. And the reason why I wanted us to begin with, just before this verse, in the phrase, in the beloved, is primarily so that we can appreciate that surely it must be from the abundance of his grace. Because he gave, in our place, in redeeming us, he gave the best of heaven. It was not an angel that God spared. It wasn't even a million angels that God spared so that it would be one person being saved per angel or one angel per person being saved. No, he, he gave the 
infinite Son of God. And it is one whom he loves, intensely loves. You remember even when he was being baptized, when the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you were a farmer and uh, you needed to uh, give a, a, one of your cows freely to some event that is taking place, uh, you, you, you go in and you look at your cows, you tend to choose the one you can spare, isn't it? You know, you sort of look and say, yeah, this is the one that's been troubling me a lot. Can you please, you know, get it, slaughter it? After all, the people who will be eating won't know that, uh, you know, it was the one that was troubling me the most. You, you, you don't go to your most treasured one. You don't. That's part of what affected the, the prodigal son's elder brother when he was told that your, your brother is back and your father has killed the fattened cow for him. He thought, hang on. I mean, I never even got a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And, and I'm the one who behaved myself so much. So he went into some kind of social boycott. And, and when his, his father came out and, and began to, to try and explain to him, you, you could have felt the, the tension in, 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 in the moment. You, you could have cut it, as it were, with, with a knife. When, when the, the elder brother said to his father, almost, now you shut up. You shut up. You can't be talking to me like this. Because I've never disobeyed your orders. I've, I've worked hard on this, on this farm. But while your son was squandering his wealth with prostitutes, you take this animal, which we have spoiled with the richest fare on this farm, so that it is fat and bulky, that's the one you kill for him. Your friends, that's exactly what's happening here. God took the best of heaven, not for well-behaved sinners, but for the worst of rebels. The worst of rebels. Now, if that doesn't speak about a richness of grace, I don't know what would. And then also, as I tried to show you last week, when we think in terms of forgiveness here, it's more than just forgiveness. God did not just say, okay, I'm going to forgive you for your past sins up to the point that you become a Christian. Now, from this point onwards, you have to earn forgiveness. No. No. The, the, what he has done is to provide a forgiveness in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for all our sins, past, present, future, 
all the sins that we can ever commit, which we will ever commit. What he did was to take all of them and put them on the shoulders of his son. On the shoulders of his son. Or if we can imagine that it is a debt that is being owned in the accountancy packages, in the, uh, the logbooks or ledger, he, he took that figure, the whole of it, and put it onto Jesus Christ in his accounts so that it went from whatever the negative was to a further negative because of the millions upon millions of sinners and then millions and millions of sins that we would commit against God from the time of our birth to the time we die. All of them in all their ugliness, all of them bestowed upon him. Now again I say, you can very well understand the phrase according to the riches of his grace. Because surely that speaks about rich, rich grace. The phrase according to means fitting with, in fitting with the riches of his grace. In other words, it's showing the, the generous abundance with which he has given. Uh, one way in which we can illustrate it um, is if we imagine the richest person on earth, there are about three guys who constantly change that position, but let's take the one we know the most, and that is Bill Gates. So imagine Bill Gates and I donating to some event and we give the same amount of money. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of money by your standard. And, yeah, it has hurt my bank account badly. But the moment you know that both Conrad and Bill gave the same amount of money, you will be saying about him, him, not Miga, him, that he did not give according to his riches. Because you know his riches. In other words, it's to do with what he has in store. And then he is giving according to that. In other words, for, for a guy like Bill Gates, a million dollars is petty cash. You understand what I mean? Eh? It's petty cash. It's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, he sort of um, zeros off to a figure. So just, just knock out these six zeros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's get somewhere there. He, he thinks in those terms. Whereas for some of us, just the way the kwacha has moved in relation to the dollar, I mean, we are celebrating like nobody's business, but what we have in our bank account is probably 1,000 kwacha. It's that difference we're talking about here. So, God, from 
the bank of heaven, the bank of grace, which blows the, the ceiling from any building that is trying to occupy, keep that grace. It's, it's off the charts if you're trying to sort of put the figures and, and put a chart to it. It's completely impossible to contain. It is that kind of grace that is bestowed upon us. It is in accordance to the richness of that grace. I mean, just thinking that God the Son should have been sacrificed in this way should convince us that this is next to impossible. But that is exactly what he has done. I've used this illustration before, but I've used it with the sort of Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab and uh, all the rest of it, Boko Haram. But I think now, with the way we are feeling, it's good to use it with Taliban. I think we are in that atmosphere right now where Taliban makes sense. Assuming I was a railway man, and upon reporting on duty, my wife brings our little toddler because she has to go and do something and says, look after our son, our only son. And I'm the guy who changes rails, so trains could go one way or the other. And also in terms of, you know, that bridge, the troll bridge that goes up like this over a river and comes down so the train can pass through. And while I'm working, I fall asleep, only to hear that the train is coming. And I'm reliably informed that it's the Taliban who are on it. And it's time for me to change the gears. And in the moment of attempting to do so, I notice that my son is not with me in my little office. Looking around, looking around, the little kid has gone on all four outside, out of curiosity, and ended up being in a place where if I bring down the gears and that thing closes, I squeeze my own son to death, the Taliban go through. If I save him, the Taliban go into the river. Now, I know what I would do. Before you throw stones at me, I know exactly what you would do as well. <laughs> you would rescue your son to be a good excuse to get rid of the Taliban, isn't it? To be able to say to my wife and everybody else, look, if I had brought that thing down, I would have killed my son. Can't you understand? We're not even talking about who was in the train. But in my own mind, I'll be congratulating myself. Good readers. Well, you know what God did? Out of love for rebels, 
who are devastating not only his world, but also his law. Do you know what he did? He brought down that gear. He even heard his own son crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He heard it. He brought it down. Crushed his own son. For who? That should give you some time to think. For who? You know what you've done. For who? Now that is rich grace. Not just grace, but rich grace. That's what God has done. And no wonder in the hymn we were singing last week, we said, who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Who? This blows my mind. It's totally unimaginable. The angels in heaven should have closed their eyes. They cannot bear to look at this reality. That God should pour on his own son, beloved son, the darling of heaven, his wrath that ought to sink all sinners to the depth of hell, that he should pour all that upon his own son until he says it is finished. No wonder the Apostle Paul goes on to say that it was according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Notice that word, which he lavished on us. To lavish is to give abundantly. Its synonyms are words like to pour abundantly, to shower profusely, to heap copiously, to smother overwhelmingly. That is it. That's what God has done in Christ. Now, it also suggests love and goodwill. It suggests love and goodwill. So if somebody is very upset with you because you maybe broke the windscreen of his most expensive car and out of anger, he jumps on you and he's raining blows on you. you. You've already collapsed. You're unconscious and he's still raining blows and raining blows on you. Nobody's going to report and say that, uh, you know, his blows uh, were lavishly given to him. You, you don't speak lavish when somebody is angry and the effect there is that which is damaging. You don't speak in those terms. Rather, it is what a, a stinking rich young man does to win a lady's love that he is madly in love with. Madly in love with. He, he, he gives gifts on her wedding day that you even say, rather on her birthday that you even say, mm, 
<laughs> is this guy in his right mind? He is. Well, not quite, but almost. He's lavishing her with his gifts. It speaks abundantly concerning the love that he has for her. Another place where we find a picture of this is in 2 Samuel and uh, chapter 9. And it's the way David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. Uh, I'll quickly give you the background. Um, it, in, in his case, while you go to 2 Samuel 9, in his case, he was doing it because of Jonathan. Jonathan and David were like two peas in a pod. They, they had come to know each other and really loved each other and swore allegiance to each other, despite the fact that Jonathan's father, Saul, had also swore to kill, to destroy David. And he was often very bitter towards Jonathan. Because while he was tr trying to locate Jonathan and rather de uh, David and destroy him, Jonathan was working behind the scenes to undermine all those efforts. Well, finally, in battle, both Saul and Jonathan died. And to cut the long story short, David rose uh, to the position of being king uh, over Israel. So now he's established himself, and there's peace all around him, and this is where this story begins, chapter 9 and verse 1. And David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness, notice, for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And he was crippled as a little child, the maid to the father was carrying him away from danger and in the midst of that hurry dropped him and that's how he broke his legs. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Merkur, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Now the word Lodibar means no pasture. It is the way in which you name a place because of what is there. Uh, in our case, for instance, when they say Ngombe, it's because there used to be a farm there and they were keeping cows. And so there is that uh, name, Kabanana, I'm told, again, was a farm where they were growing small bananas. Um, and on and on you can go. So this place was named Lodiba, no pasture, because obviously of the condition where it was, the, the weather condition or climatic conditions that made it impossible for you to grow, whether it's wheat or hay or wherever it might be. 
And consequently, it gained that name. And that's where this son of Jonathan had ended up being taken to go and hide. That's not where any rich people are. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, again the repeat, at Lodibar. For the, those who were reading Hebrew, that was going to mean a lot to them. For us, it is lost in translation. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And said, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard? Look at the way he conceived himself. For a dead dog such as I. Not just a dog, but a dead dog. And we can all identify with that. Dead dogs are thrown away in a rubbish heap. That's what you do to them. You throw them away in a rubbish heap. How can you treat me this way? That you should give me the wealth of my grandfather, Saul, and more than that, that I should now start eating at the king's table. Which is what he did, as you read the rest of this account. And this same Ziba who brought him is now told your family, and all your servants, they will be serving this one individual. This one individual. It's a picture, but not a sufficient picture. Because we're not just dead dogs, but we are dead dogs that were biting into the, the legs of, of this individual until we were killed in the process of doing so. and that he should worry about us to such an extent. I mean, that rarely ever happens. But that is what is happening in this picture. The Apostle Paul never got over this. Never. This lavishing, this overflow of the love of God towards us as sinners. He never got over it. And so, in First Peter, look at the way he describes himself. First, oh, sorry, First Timothy. First Timothy, and chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. He says there, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, 
appointing me to his service. And then he says, though formerly I was one, a blasphemer, two, a persecutor, three, an insolent opponent. Now, that's what he lists down concerning himself. And then he says, but I received mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And here is the phrase. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Overflowed for me. In other words, the grace of our Lord was, was given to me in abundance. In fact, some versions say super abundance. And it's all capturing this sense of being lavished. The grace of God was poured on me abundantly. The grace of God was showered on me profusely. The grace of God was heaped on me copiously. I was smothered overwhelmingly by the grace of God. Let me ask you, is this the way you think about your salvation? Is this the way you think? You know, most of us think the way the prodigal son thought about his father. You know, when the prodigal son was about to leave, the far country, to abandon that sheep, in fact, that pig sty, what happened is he was thinking like this, that, you know, my father's hired servants have food and even to spare. Let me head back home and ask him to treat me like one of them. It will be enough. And what he was expecting upon getting home was to find a, a sulky dad sitting in a corner. And the moment he sort of shows up, he, the father probably was going to sort of look at him like this, from the top to the bottom, and then start attending to other business as usual. And then after begging for a bit of attention and finally getting it, the father would listen. And then just say, well, just go into that corner there and uh, just keep quiet. I'm busy. And after rotting there for a few days, finally perhaps some kind of sympathy in a, a father's heart for a son would cause him to call one of the servants and say, okay, just, just take him and... Uh, find him a place in the servants' quarters. He should be lucky that I've even allowed him to stay here. Take him. He would have said, thank you for that. He would have knelt down and said, Mukwai, thank you, thank you. But the reception he got was absolutely, as we say, out of this world. The hugging, while he was still smelling like a pig, 
his father running, this old man running with legs that are now finished, running to come and embrace him. And not even being allowed to finish his uh, apology. He did not even get to the last sentence that he had prepared. If you ever read it, read it again. He began quite well. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's where he ends. He never goes as far as saying, treat me like one of your hired servants. Never gets there because the father is quickly saying, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, sandals for his feet, and so on. A ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf, man. Let's celebrate. Out of this world. Let me ask, where do you find yourself? Where do you find yourself? A God who is all measured and always being reminded of your sin, always being reminded, yeah? The wealth that I had raised, look, you've squandered it. I told for it for years. Always being reminded. Or is it a God who spoils you? Spoils you with the substitute, his own son. A God who spoils you. Spoils you with a pardon that is for all your sins and a righteousness that is purchased by his own son who smothers you with his love. Is that your view of this God? I'm afraid to say, that most of us tend to be in the first category. We, we fail to see the riches of grace that have been lavished upon us. We fail to see it. We fail to see it. And that's the Apostle Paul gets back to grace, love, and mercy. Charles Wesley captures this pretty well when he says, and can it be that I, notice where the finger is, that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood. He says, died he for me, for me, he's asking for me, him on the cross, for me who caused his pain, me who him to death pursued, he died for me. And he says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? It's amazing. 
It blows my mind. In fact, in the next stanza, he says, it's mystery all. Let earth adore. Let angels' minds inquire no more. You cannot arrive at fully understanding this. You can't. This is the depth of divine love. God has poured it all out upon hell-deserving sinners such as I. Are you overwhelmed by your own sin? Are you? I'm saying, go to the cross. Go to the cross and, and, and allow the, the Victoria Falls of God's grace at, at that highest of seasons to just gush out upon your soul and pour and pour and pour until you are saying to God, God, this is going to kill me. This is too much love. Lord, please. That's the grace of God towards us sinners. A grace that he has lavished upon us. Oh, that we might live in that light. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we shall soon be singing, oh, how the grace of God amazes me. Grant that it might be real and not just a song. Uh, that we sitting here will be saying that that grace of God does amaze us. So that we too may say, come the whole of me, eyes, ears, and voice. Join me, creation all in joyful noise. Praise him who broke the chain. Oh God, help us to draw the attention of the world to the grace of God and ultimately to the God of this grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.